You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The way in which halacha establishes majority rule, and then I'm going to talk about um, the extent to which there's an absolute rule, and then I'm going to um, set up a particular case, the case of Bechan Hill, not to leave you all in desperate suspense, uh, where majority rule broke down and talk at some degree about how that was handled, the various options that the um, that the, um, the the Talmuds give, uh, positive and negative, and then um, I think show how the issues that gave rise then are still with us, and we're still dealing with those kinds of issues, and then you can decide for yourself the way in which that has implications for uh, for America. So if you look at page one of the source sheet, so there are really three, three sets of psukim that one has to address. Um, the first is um, the combination of what we call losa sur, which is the prohibition, which is the obligation to obey uh, some kind of some kind of centralized halachic authority or some kind of halachic authority, uh, together with the prohibition uh, against disobeying it, which is framed in the um, I guess they're both framed as negatives, uh, which are which is we know as the halacha zaken mamre, right? That somebody who goes against the Sanhedrin, a majority of Sanhedrin is executed, right? So the psukim that matter to us are. Uh, it tells you that if there's something that is that is um, there's something that you don't understand yourself, and that's going to matter in a while, because what happens if you do understand it, so you don't have to bother asking the question, because it's 100% clear to you, but the authorities don't share your, right, are also very clear. They just think it's the other way, right? So the the, the issue is framed as if something is beyond you, so then, right, you get up and you go to the place which God established, you go to the Right, Chazal make a big deal out of to say that we don't have an objective requirement for who the judge, judge or judges are. It's just whoever happens to have the authority in that in that time. Right, Gemara says Yiftach Kedoro Yishmuel Kedoro. Right, even have Yiftach and Shimshon. So the Gemara describes as Kale Olam. Right, ultimate lightweights. If they are the people in charge for that generation, then their their law is binding. So you go, and they tell you the Dvar HaMishpat, that you have to do whatever they do, but they tell you, lots of stuff about you have to listen to them. Right? And the line that becomes famous is, Don't stray from what they tell you, left or right. Um, so you're taught in elementary school that, um, based on Rashi, which is what you should be taught, that means even if you think that what that they're saying right is left and left is right, you should still listen to them. Um, but you should be aware that in both Talmuds, both the Yerushalmi and the Bavli, the drasha is exactly the opposite. The drasha is right that you only have to listen to them if they say right is right and left is left. But if they tell you right is left and left is right, then you don't have to listen to them at all. So right, so lots of, there's all you know, enormous amounts of halachic uh, ink spilled trying to figure out whether that's actually you actually have to choose between the two drashot. Uh, whether whether the drashot apply in different contexts or whether they can be reconciled in some sort of way, not my issue right now. There is a prohibition called lotosur, um, and the, the person who disobeys, right, the Shriya said by the don't, so they get executed, um, right, um, um, in order to prevent this, right, the whole Amish, and everybody watch that. Very easy to note. Okay, so number one, pasuk says you have to listen to what the centralized authority in the centralized place tells you to do. Um, but the centralized authority can be plural, right? Now that's not that's not entirely clear from the pasuk. The pasuk says hakwanim v'halviim, 
And then it says hashofet. So shofet is singular, and konem, konem levim is plural. Um, but we tend to interpret this as a single phrase, konem levim hashofet, to mean all the members of the Sanhedrin. And so we treat this as an obligation to listen to the Sanhedrin. Uh, the problem with saying it applies to the Sanhedrin specifically is then when there's no Sanhedrin, there's no halakhic authority at all. So enormous amount of trouble is spent um, trying to figure out in what context and in what way does the prohibition of tasur apply to um, post uh, post distract post korban Judaism or po- and then explicitly then more even more so post Sanhedrin Judaism and what would be the mechanism for establish for establishing such authority if you need authority there's probably disagreement how do you resolve the disagreement right that's those are all the problems raised by this passage. Okay, second thing is, right, that uh, we eliminate one possible mechanism, for, uh, deciding mechanism, when we say, lo bashamayim hi. Um, right, that's, the, that's this whole series of psukim and dvarim, which tells you that the mitzvah is not distant. Um, but the Gemara famously, in at the end of the Tanah Shalach story, Rabbi Yeshua gets up, and we'll see this, and he says, the Torah is not in heaven. And what he understands that to mean is that you have to make an argument that is humanly intelligible, and the way I like to frame it is, you have to make an argument that is humanly accountable. In order to count, right? In order to matter in halacha, I have to say something that you can evaluate. If I say something that, if I say I had a private revelation, God spoke to me, that is eliminated halachically. And furthermore, but it goes further than that. It says even if I appeal directly to God and God does something publicly, right, like um, uprooting carob trees or making rivers go backwards, that doesn't work at all either. Because even though I can evaluate the result of your argument, but I can't evaluate the way you can the way in which you got to the argument, um, right? So that's formally what Lo Shemayim he seems to mean. It runs into a problem because a claim based on tradition, right? Just say this is what my teachers told me, is also not evaluatable by somebody else because they don't have access to your teacher, and it's also not evaluable in the way of reason because I may not be able to explain what my teacher said. So the explanation I gave you for Loba Shemayim, he is very, very attractive, but doesn't do a good job of explaining arguments from tradition. I want to be upfront about that also. But okay, for now, we're just going to say is there's a prohibition of Lotasur, and that prohibition, is, and whatever the, whatever mechanism you need to establish authority cannot be established by a means that would be seen as um, deriving authority directly from Shemayim. And then we get to the Pasuk that... Um, Right, that attempts to resolve this and explain the mechanism. The Pasuk says, right, in the midst of a series of um, prohibitions about behavior in court, uh, right, false witness, favoring the poor over the rich. Um, so the Gemara is a Pasuk, which can be read in two different ways. If you read it the way we, with the Trup, it's a two part verse. Lo rabim liraot, so if you read it that way, where there's really only two, um, really only two sentences, right? So there's two, two, two loves. Don't be after the rabim, the raot, right? Don't follow the majority for bad things. And then also don't in some way respond to a riv to, right, to follow the rabim, lahatot. Right? So there are two prohibitions, if you read it that way, against following the majority. So you can try and make an argument by implication and say, well, there are two prohibitions against following the majority for evil. Well, why would you do that unless there was an assumption that you follow the majority for good? Um, but Chazal tend to, or at least the way we, uh, the, the way Rabbi Yirmiya quotes the Pasuk, and it's quoted in other places in the Gemara, 
What we do instead is we read the Pasuk really against the truck, and we read it as if it has three segments. And so we read the last phrase no longer has a low in front of it, right? And this is actually an imperative. You're supposed to follow the majority. Okay, now you still have to deal with right? There's an explicit thing which says you're not supposed to follow the majority. And now there's a thing that you are supposed to follow the majority. So we know how to resolve that. We have other kinds of drushas like that. Like right? Um, in terms of looking away from lost objects, the answer is sometimes you follow the majority and sometimes you don't. The question is when? Okay, but it seems that there are certain kinds of contexts in which the way in which we generate the authority, uh, right, the authority that is necessary in order to invoke the prohibition of Lotasur is by means of Achari Rabim Latot, and that has to be in some way a majority arrived at by a means that don't violate Lo Bashamayani. Okay, that's our that's our opening structure. Um, so we all know the end the end of the right that the, the Tanar Shalachnaya story where Rebeliezer gets up and Rebeliezer brings all these apparently supernatural proofs for his position about whether this oven becomes to me or not. And Rabbi Shua gets up at the end and says we reject Rabbi Yezra's proofs because Amad Rabbi Shua Raglav Ve'amar Lo Bashamayimi. Rabbi Shua gets up and says your proofs from miraculous things are irrelevant because they are uh, they are themselves violations of the legal process. Uh, and and this get, we get all sorts of circularities. And God must have known they were violations of the legal process. Therefore, God did not actually intend them to intervene in the to intervene, intervene in the legal process. So the Gemara says, my lo good, so lo so that tells you why you can't do this, but that doesn't explain why Rebbe Eliezer should give in to them. That just explains, well, we don't accept his proofs. It doesn't explain why he should accept everybody else's authority. So Rebbe Yirmiya says, what we mean is, lo is that the Torah, not only that halachic authority can't come from Shemayim, but that the mechanisms for halachic authority must already be encoded in the Torah. The Torah must be a self-sufficient legal document that doesn't require any kind of external uh, decision mechanism. So what does the Torah tell us about a um, decision mechanism? So he says, the Torah was already given from Sinai. We pay no attention to heavenly voices, right? Why? Okay, so Rabbi Yirmiya's claim is that what Rabbi Yeshua meant was not only that we reject Rabbi Ezra's proofs, but that Rabbi Ezra has to, it seems, accept our authority because it's Achari Rabbi Mlatot. We should be careful that Rabbi Yeshua didn't explicitly say that Rabbi Ezra had to give in to them. All he said was that we don't have to give in to Rabbi Ezra. Rabbi Yirmiya comes along and says, no, Rabbi Ezra had to give in to them because they were the Rabbim, and it says Achari Rabbi Mlatot. Okay, so at this point, the Yerushalmi asks an important question. Right? The Yerushalmi has a different version of the story. But for our purposes, I don't think the differences in the story matter very much. Hirushalmi uh, says, If you're going to claim that the ground, right, the reason Rabbi Yezir writes, the reason that Rishua and Rabbi Yirmiya together say, the reason that Rabbi Yezir has to give in is A, lo and B, So if Rabbi Yezir didn't give in, he has to, it seems, be rejecting one of those principles. Either he thinks the Torah can be in Shemayim, which it seems pretty straightforward, it is, uh, uh, right, because he's bringing divine proofs, so he must have a different understanding of, of Loba Shemaim, uh, and or he must reject Acharibim Hatot. 
So the, the Yerushalmi doesn't care so much. The Yerushalmi doesn't have Loba Shemayimi. So Yerushalmi is, you know, might be saying, even if you say that the Torah can be in Shemayim, but if the, you don't convince the majority, you should write, Ahari Rabim Latot is superior to Abat Kol nonetheless. So what's Rabbi Ezra's rationale? So the Yerushalmi has an interesting claim. Lo hikpid el serfu tarotav bifanav. Eliezer's only objection wasn't um, so. He, there are there are I think a bunch of ways, different ways to understand it. Here is my 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 preferred initial understanding. Eliezer said that legal authority can uh, in an existing dispute can't become retroactive. So it might be that going forward you're right, but in the end, in order to prove that they were right, they were they were trying to. They, were, they wanted to go further. They wanted to claim not only are we right, going, not only are we the law going forward, but we also have to demonstrate that we're correct. And if we're correct, then our ruling has to be applied retroactively. Now, that's a fair argument because otherwise you have an incoherent legal system, right? The exact same thing happens on two consecutive days. And we say yesterday it was okay to treat it as tahor, but today we made the law, we decided it has to be tamay. So that's hard to sell. So they said, look, if we, de- if we declare the law this way, then we have to declare the law has always been this way, and we have to make it retroactive. And Eliezer said, no, just because we declare the law, right, the law has to be this way now because of a, a mechanical decision-making process doesn't mean we have to claim it's absolute truth. We made a decision. When we make a decision, we, right, we at least legitimate our current option, but we don't have to say that all the other options were wrong. We just have to say you can't follow them anymore. So Eliezer got upset because they applied their ruling retroactively. And the important point about this is that if that's correct, Sir Eliezer is saying, Ahari Rabim Latot is not a mechanism for arriving at truth. Ahari Rabim Latot is just a mechanism for arriving at law. And, and law doesn't have to be consistent over time because when we say this is the law, we don't mean to say that it wasn't, that it wasn't possible to think otherwise. We just means that we arrived at a point we had to make a decision, but the majority seemed to feel otherwise. The majority seemed to feel, in this case at least, that they had to prove their Beliezer was absolutely wrong. And so now we have an interesting question, right? Is that true? Do we think, when we say, are we establishing a truth of Torah? Or right, or are we establishing simply a, um, a heuristic? Right? A way in which you have to act uh, you have to act going forward. And the thing is, that if you think it is right, each of those has implications for what happens if you're not convinced. Right? What happens if it's Ahri Rabim Latot right, is supposed to be a truth mechanism, and I look at it and say, but it's not true. It's just not true. I know it's not true. So in what way, right, in what way can you be bound if you don't really believe it? Right? You're only, right? That assumes that you always have to follow the true law. On the other hand, if it's just a decision mechanism, so you might on the other hand say, well, you know what, I, I understand that it's more important to preserve the system than to follow this than to follow this law because who really cares in the end whether this thing is Tamei or Tahor? But if the result of following the system, let's say, is that somebody lives and somebody dies, or that I end up doing something that I think is a Vodazara, right? So I might say, how can you tell me that preserving the system is more important than right than following what I believe is God's true will in the Torah? So each of these ways of establishing a Haririm Hatot, whether as a truth principle or as a decision principle, which doesn't make claims about truth, opens up possibilities for acting um, for acting otherwise, even though the Yerushalmi here tries to argue 
the Rebeliezer really didn't object to their establishment of the law. He thought they were wrong, but he would have agreed to follow it. It was their making it retroactive that bothered him. And the Bavli in the version of the story, uh, it seems pretty clear that Rebeliezer uh, objects to the law going forward as well. And he thinks that you're just wrong. But probably in Bavli, it's because his issue is not with Acharei Rebim Latot, it's that he disagrees with Lobo Shemayimi, and he thinks that Acharei Rebim Latot is a lower level of determination than Lobo Shemayimi, whereas Rabbi, whereas, uh, Rabbi Shua thinks that Lobo Shemayimi is an assumption, and then you right, then you get to Acharei Rebim Latot once you've eliminated the Lobo Shemayimi evidence. Okay, that's where we are to start. Okay, so now let's take a look at some of the, um, right, well, the evidence for Rabbi, for Rabbi Eliezer, right, being that Eliezer might reject majority rule in principle if you have uh, evidence, and not just heavenly evidence, is the uh, Gemara in Chagiga, where you have a story where Rabbi Yossi ben Durmuskis goes to visit Rabbi Eliezer in Lud, and Rabbi Eliezer says to him, oh, so what was the Chiddush today in the base Medrash? And he says, Nimnu v'gamru, they voted that Amon and Moab are me'asrin ma'asirani bishvi, that in Amon and Moab, which are not part of biblical Eretz Yisrael, um, right, they imposed the law of Master Ani, which is in the third and sixth year of the Shemitah cycle. You have to take um, 10% of your crops after Truma and Maser and give them to the poor. So Rebbe is saying very dramatic. He says, Yosi, shot yodecha v'kabeli necha. Reach out your hands and accept your eyes. Right, He blinds him in some way. And he does. And then Rebbe says something weird. He's ready, he, ready, he cries and he says, Right, the secrets of God are to those who fear Him, uh, etc. Et and he says, Amarlo, he says, then lechem or lem, say to them, al tachushu Don't, don't be, don't take your vote into account. You claim that you voted that way, but I actually have a tradition, and. Therefore, your vote is irrelevant. So the civil reading of this Gemara is that Ezra would have thought the same thing if their vote had gone the other way. He would have said, ignore your vote. Your vote is irrelevant because I have a tradition. Um, it's not really Halacha L'Mosh Sinai, right, that everyone points out because we're talking about Halacha D'Rabbanan. It's just, right, he thinks that the Sanhedrin, even if they vote, has no authority against, uh, against prior laws. If they claim the law... There was no such decree. That would be a mistake. Maybe even if they could overturn the decree, but they can't claim there never was such a decree. That's just false. So it sounds like Rebbe believes that any time that he has certain knowledge of the law, then he is entitled to follow his position against the Sanhedrin, even if against the majority of the Sanhedrin, because they're just wrong. And we could take it back to the original Pasuk and say, because this is not a key palemi mechadavar, this is not something that is beyond them. He knows the answer. I should point out that the Alei Tamar, which is a 20th century, very cool 20th century commentary on Yerushalmi, tries to claim, fascinatingly, the reverse, that um, Rebbe Eliezer actually was crying because he realized, now, finally, that Rebbe Yeshua was right, because look, right, here's a case where the majority didn't have a tradition, and they still reached the right conclusion, and so he was crying because he realized he had been wrong to oppose them in the story of the, honor of the Tanar Vachnoi because the majority always gets it right. Very nice. I have to say that it's, I don't find it very convincing as a shot in the Yerushalmi. Okay, story ends happily where Rabbi Ezer gives Rabbi Yossi back his eyes. Okay, so that's one. this is one story where majority rule is used to impose something against Rabbi Ezer, and we have a bunch of different models for seeing how Rabbi Ezer reacted. Maybe he gave in, but only but only retrospectively, um, or maybe he didn't get right, maybe, maybe he didn't give in at all. 
maybe he held to his position and that's why he dies in Kherim. Because he thinks that um that you can't be that you can't have to follow Sanhedrin if you know they're wrong. Okay. But it's still very reasonable. Rabbi Ezra would might even agree that everybody else has to follow the majority because everybody else does not know that the, that the Sanhedrin is wrong. Right? Why should they believe him over them? For that, he needs to you know to produce miracles and things like that. But it might be Rabbi Ezra's whole argument is only about his own status, and that position seems to be uh, supported by the other um, I guess um, you know, halachic uh, halachic rebel slash hero. Which is Akavya ben Mahalalel. Right, Akavya ben Mahalalel, uh, the Mishnah idiot says, testified about four things. So he had four traditions. Um, and they said to him, Akavya, take them back and we'll make you Avbetin. And he said, I won't do that because that w- then I would be, right, then I would be, be called, then I would be, um, let them call me a fool my entire life. And, and let me not be wicked in the eyes of God even for a moment. And then there's a sort of deep problematic here where he says not to be called wicked, a fool, not to be called wicked one day before the makom, but then it turns out that before the makom is followed by, I also don't want to be thought of as of bad character of the population because people will say that the reason I changed my mind was for power. Both of these are very problematic because what he should say is I can't change my mind because you're wrong. He doesn't say that. So we have to leave that as a mystery for Akavya ben Halal for now. So the first position in the Mishnah says they put him in Kherim and he died. And when he died, they, um, when he died, they actually stoned his, his, um, his coffin to show that he was in Kherim. Rabbi denies that. Akavya was too great. But why? It's not clear why Rabbi disagrees. Why shouldn't they put him in Kherim if, in fact, he is sticking to positions against the majority? And then, but then when he's dying, he tells his son, don't follow my positions. Follow the majority because I know that I'm right, but you don't know that I'm right. As far as you're concerned, there's a dispute between competing traditions. So so the story of Akavya seems to be a support for the idea that even Rabbi was only, right, was, and and Reliezer and and and, um, and 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 Akavya, what they stand for is something like a right of conscience. Sometimes, if you know the Sanhedrin is wrong, you can't be bound, but you have to know. They don't call into question the authority of the legal system over everyone else. Everyone else, it might be Reliezer and Akavya agree, and Akavya certainly seems to be based on a story of the sun. Everyone else who has no certainty has to resolve their doubts. It's key. Palei Mechadavar. They have to resolve their doubts by appealing to majority. So that establishes majority as the fundamental mechanism by which the law is established with a separate question as to whether what is the law in the sense of the objective law, the whole community is always binding on individuals, particularly individuals of great stature who have a, are seen by us as having a right to, um, as having a right to certainty in, um, on legal issues. Okay, so the so we move to the Gemara Sanhedrin. The Gemara Sanhedrin says raises the question of why why they only put a Kavim Mahal in Cherem, why didn't they execute him? Um, so one possibility the Gemara says is maybe the Sanhedrin has no obligation to execute as a Kain Mamre, maybe it only has a right to, and they chose to forgive a Kavim Mahalel. And the other possibility, which is very odd, but we'll see coming up again in a moment, is that a Kavim Mahalel only held his position theoretically if Neishtohu Raha Lachalamase. 
but he never issued it as a legal ruling for others. All right, and that is a plausible, if odd, reading of Akavi Mahalel because of what he tells his son. Uh, right, so they put him in Cherem because they thought it was dangerous for him to keep saying the session was wrong, 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 wrong. But they didn't. They, but they didn't execute him because you only execute people when they actually actively encourage insurrection and disobedience, and he didn't encourage disobedience. Okay. Yes. It does. It does, right? We, see, right? we, we saw the thing at the very beginning, right? It says, um, it says, right, um, here we are, right? The Chol Amish movie row, everybody will see, will see this, but those you don't know it, and they won't do this kind of stuff again. And that's the way the Bavli concludes, right, that there are two positions, um, that Zairi quotes on Che Yerushalayim as saying that, that you can forgive as a memory, that, right? And the response was, no, right? Uh, right, that it's that um, you have to kill him, that you have to kill him Kadeshla Yarbu Machloket Israel because it's right, it's politically necessary to execute people who advocate for disobedience. It says it here too. Uh, interesting. I mean, so, you know, first, just to you know, look at the Gemara. The Gemara does say, right, that Zaira says, "Name of Shalayim." Three cases that you can that you're allowed to that you're, that the um, the injured parties are allowed to forgive the violator. Right, a husband can forgive a wife who was a serta. Parents can forgive a ben Mora, and a zakin mamre, and the Beitin can forgive a zakin mamre. But when he comes to, he says to my friends in the south. They agree with the first two that that parents can forgive a ben Suramura, husband can forgive a a, a right a wife who's a sota, but you can't right. He said, but al zakin mamre lahodulu. They didn't agree with me, but zakin mamre kideish leir bumachlokit Israel. Right. So now, what's notably missing in this whole conversation is what you're talking about is the viar tarami Israel. Right. Get rid of the evil. Right. That's missing. That's missing entirely. And so it's worth thinking about. Like, what do they uh, right? What are the, why, why don't they keep it? Why don't they mention this as evil? The answer is only evil, I guess, if they're wrong. So you have to be really sure they're wrong. But what if? How, but how can you be sure they're wrong? Right? That's, uh, I think, that's the easiest way of looking at it. Uh, you could say, how does how does the Sanhedrin know that Zakin Mamre is wrong? That's right. But say, but if you want to say that the reason they have to do it is because of the art Ra, so you have to identify it as Ra. But it, so they, but they don't say that. They say the reason they think this is Kadesh Yarbu Machloket Israel. So they give a political reason. So in each of these cases, you could say, you know, I, I, I Rav Aaron Soloveitchik has a shita I love about the death penalty for Bnei Noach, uh, which is that it's only mutter if in fact it has a, it's effective as a deterrent. But often, you know, right, the result of killing somebody who has a maverick position is to make them into a murderer, and it spreads the idea instead of right instead of eliminating it. So maybe right. So maybe we could just say the Sanhedrin is entitled to make the judgment if we do this. Is it more or less? Is it more likely to lead to this position becoming, uh, you know, becoming eternal and 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 unmovable? 
or is it more likely to right to to prevent it? So they just make a political judgment, uh, right? I would like to you know to go further and say they're entitled to say you know what, we really think he's a good man, and if he believes this so strongly, how can we be sure? So we have to make a decision, but that's, but to kill him, we're gonna feel really bad about this if it turns out he's right in a week. But I'm on it. We don't pass him that way, right? In the end, we break the the Bavlis, to whatever extent we say the Bavli says Kadeshli Rabu Machlok in Israel. Okay, we'll come back to this idea in a, in a few minutes. Uh, you'll, you'll see. Um, okay, you should know, right? If those of you who don't know, right? This is my famous or infamous article uh, in right in NYU is the Zakin Mamri as the hero of tradition. Um, so I can send you the article if you want. Um, okay. So, um, so the Gemara now goes on and it gives you a, um, a fascinating halachic history. All right, so now we have our model. Our model is we don't want machloket in Israel. We're even willing to say that you can't forgive a zakin mamre that you want to forgive because that would lead to this terrible result of your machloket be Israel. What I just said to Mitch, which is open question, is but what happens if it won't work? What happens if, right, so there's two reasons it can, might not work. It might not work because executing this person will actually cause more machloket in Israel, or it might not work because there's already so much machloket in Israel, what difference does it make? All right, so what's the point, right? You know, you limit this machloket, but there are 500 others, right? What are you doing? Okay, so the Gemara quotes the bright as follows. Amar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi said, Mitchila machloket Israel. There was a point in history where we did not have to worry about machloket. Machlokes didn't multiply. Okay, and we had a decision mechanism. What was the decision mechanism? Is the Beit Din of seventy one sits in the chamber of human stone in the Beit Hamikdash, and there are sub right there are subordinate Batei Din sitting in various places on Har right Harabai Petachazara, and then there's others lower courts all the way throughout the community. So if somebody has a lachi question, you ask your local Beit Din, and if they know the answer, they tell you right. And if there's no precedent, um, then they send you to the next court. And right, so this is a model built off the the um, Yitro um, Parshat Yitro, where Moshe gives pe- gives the lower courts, the people he appoints, the authority to make decisions based on the law he's told them, but not to make creative halachic decisions. If somebody asks a question that is not decidable on the basis of precedent, you have to pass it up the line. So that's the model we have here, right? If you have a new question, uh, right, so you pass it up to the next level, and at every level. If there's, right, if there's a precedent that they think clearly applies, they just tell you the law. And if not, they pass it up until you get to the Great Sanhedrin. Okay, when the question gets to the Great Sanhedrin, if there's a precedent, great, they tell you. And if not, so here for the first time we get, if not, they take a vote. And right, so the ultimate decision mechanism at the highest level, we don't really know. We're going to assume for now that the same was true at every lower level, but that doesn't matter to us right now. The ultimate decision at the highest level is a vote. And because there's a Sanhedrin and Sanhedrin votes, then, um, right, so then, then there's no Machloket in Israel. Certainly there's not much, much Machloket in Israel. So it never gets out of hand. So the way the story should end is, but when the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed, or when the Sanhedrin moves out of the chamber of hewn stone, so then there stops being this ultimate authority, and the system breaks down. And that, in fact, is the way the Rambam tells the story. But this Breita 
in the midst of the story, which was just which is a beautiful history of how the Sanhedrin always kept Machloket from multiplying Israel, there's an unfortunate interjection which is in here, which is taken from a Mishnah in Sota. Uh, it's just interjected here, and it says, by the way, Mishiravu Talmide Shamai Vihilal, Shloshimshu Kol Tzorkan, Rabu Machloket Bisrael, Benaset Terot. When the students of Hill and Shammai multiplied, who didn't do enough Shemush, whatever that means, they didn't uh, they didn't complete their apprenticeships, whatever reason. But something happened with the students of Shammai and Hillel, and Machloket multiplied in Israel. The thing is, the students of Shammai and Hillel happened during the time of the Sanhedrin in the Lishkat Hagazit. So how could this be? Right? We have a we have a perfect system for majority rule, which we're willing to enforce by executing. Uh, people on the outside, and it didn't work. It didn't work. We're in the time of Sanhedrin, and there's still machloket. So how can we possibly explain that, right? Why would there still have been machloket? Why didn't everybody just go to the um, to Sanhedrin? So there's a um, there's a kind of a scary Yerushalmi, which explains it as follows: in the um, right, the Mishnah in the Mishnah in, the Mishnah, uh, in Paragal Hashabbos says. These are lachot that were taught in the Aliyah, the upper story, the attic, whatever, of Chizkiah ben Garon, where they went up to visit him. And they voted, and Beit Shammai um, overruled, right, out, outnumbered Behil. And 18 decrees were made on that day. When Beit Shammai overruled, um, when Shammai outnumbered Beit Hillel. Okay, so that seems like a perfectly ordinary way for things to happen. Now these are you know, these these are eighteen decrees that seem to have most of them seem to have very clear political purposes. They're decrees like uh, like um, like yeah, like Samiena, right that prevent you from uh, drinking wine uh, wine touched by non Jews even non idolatrously or by non right? All sorts of there are all sorts of ways of it mostly seem to be ways of setting up um, cultural isolationism. So you can see why they would be matters of um, great controversy in the community. There are going to be uh, different different um, communities talking, are advocating for different degrees of isolation. But okay, you have a vote, you win. Nothing unusual about that. Um, now, we know that generally we're going to find out, right, the halakha follows Beit Hillel. So we, right, it's an interesting question. Why is it on that day that Beit Shammai outnumbers Beit Hillel? So Yerushalmi tells you something which is really hard to read. Tani Rabbi Yeshua Onya Rabbi Onya. Sorry, this is a that line line, is the, line break is in the wrong place. Talmidei Beit Shammai, Amdu lahen milmata. The students of Beit Shammai stood underneath, right? Because remember they're meeting in the upstairs. But you heard Beit Talmidei Beit Hillel, and they would kill the students of Hillel. Um, right, that's pretty stark, and that explains how they had a majority. <laughs> well, if you kill the people who are trying to come in on the other side. Then that's uh, that's pretty good, okay. But Brighton says further, right? Shishamenalu, but but if they're all downstairs, it doesn't do any good. So six of them, presumably enough to, uh, right, to shift the to shift the majority, right, give to give it a, a, a shamanic majority. Went out, they went upstairs to change the majority. And the rest of them stood downstairs with swords and spears. And that's how Beit Shammai got a majority on that day. Okay, that's a little terrifying. Uh, right, so the Achronim tried to say they didn't actually kill them; they just stood there with weapons, and Beit Hillel didn't think it was Yehurig Val Yavor. Uh, but this is a little challenging because um, it is majority rule, but it's a majority rule arrived at uh, by force. 
Um, so that's a really interesting thing. Like, why would why would this happen? Right? Why would um, and it's pretty clear. Like, these are the things Beit Shammai probably feel most strongly about. Right? It's only this one occasion where Beit Shammai get to pass all this legislation, which accomplishes the social ends they want. Even though for many years there are all sorts of arguments about biblical things, where it seems that there isn't this kind of force. So something about this, right? Somewhere here, right, if these are the things about which Bechamai were no longer willing to tolerate the normal decision mechanism, and then we have to figure out how do we react to Bechamai's feelings about this? Right, why did right, we know? And it sounds like what we do is we say, well, they won. And in fact. Um, right. In fact, the um, the way in which uh, this becomes down halacha is not only did they win, but these are the only dirabanans that you cannot overturn, because we say that Beishamai went to the point of being most nefesh for them. They risked their lives to pass this legislation, so it can never be overturned. Even though all dirabanans can be overturned by later, by later, um, right, by later, by later uh, authorities, these can never be overturned. So that's a really a fascinating notion. Right, that you have this majority rule. Majority rule is subverted by force, and the result is that the rules which are subverted by force become permanent. But now we have to put this in context. We have another right. We have another Gemara which is more famous. The Gemara in Erevin says, "Rav Abba says the name of Shmuel." Beit Shammai Behil argued for three years. These one these said halacha is like us, and these said halacha is like us. A heavenly voice comes out and says, elu elu Every, These and those are the words of the living God. The halacha kaves hilol, but halacha follows bit hilol. Okay, so first obvious problem is heavenly voice. What we know, Lobushamayimi, right? What are heavenly voices doing? Why should right? Why should we right? Why is there heavenly voice coming out? And okay, heavenly voices sometimes come out as they did for Rabbi Ezra, but we're supposed to ignore them. So what is going on here? With this, uh, right, with a heavenly voice making the decision, and then we have another issue, which is why does a heavenly voice make this decision? So, in order to get a little bit of insight into that, I think we need to look at this Gemara in Yevamos. The Gemara in Yevamos records a fascinating dispute, which it attributes to both Rav and Shmuel. And I didn't give you this quote, but it also attributes the same dispute to Rav Yochan and Rish Lakish, meaning that this is treated as a pan-cultural halachic dispute. It was right because Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish are the two great figures of the first generation of Amoraim in Eretz Yisrael, and Rav and Shmuel, who we do quote here, are the two great figures of the first generation of Amoraim in Bavel. So this is a this is presented as a dispute that exists in every halachic culture, and the dispute is framed as Rav says Beit did not follow their own positions. Lo asu The argument was purely academic. And Shmuel says, that's ridiculous. Of course Beit Shammai held their positions in practice. And we could imagine a compromise position, which is that Beit Shammai held their positions in practice, but didn't tell other people that was the law. But that's easy to say for one person when you're a school, and there are lots of you, it doesn't really make much difference. You're obviously saying that should be practice. So this is a fundamental dispute, right? Whether, and when we look back at Allahic history, do we imagine the time of Beit Shammai Beit Hill in which there's a huge academic issue raising, our issue raging, but we always follow Beit Hill, except for that one day when Beit Shammai can't take it anymore and resort to force. Or do we say no? There's always uh, there are always two different positions, and it just happens that one day Beit Shammai decide they have to impose their positions 
because we're talking right what good does it do for them not to drink right not to drink in bars when um, everyone when the community is anyway right so those are things that they felt they had to impose okay so now the Gemara says Amos this dispute when is it talking about if you're claiming that it took place before the, the heavenly voice so then there's no heavenly voice why would Beit Shammai not follow their own position if you say it's after the heavenly voice right after the Bat Kol so then why would we how could they possibly follow their position against the Bat against the Bat Kol so the Gemara says no we can say this either before or after the Bat Kol before the bot, right? If you say it's if you say that it's after the bot call, so that's easy because they just held like Rabbi Yeshua, and they said lo he. So why should they follow a bot call? So that raises the interesting question: Why does it mention? Why do we eventually reach the conclusion that the halacha follows behillel if we ignore a bot call? The more interesting question is: What happens if it's bef- what happens if it's be uh, before the before the bot call? The Gemara explains well, what's the argument about. The argument about is lamanda marloasu. Sorry, the Gemara says, if it's before the Batkal, Behil were the majority. Okay, Behil is the majority. So then, why don't we, um, why don't we just follow Behil? So the Manda Amr Loasu, so the people who say Bechamai couldn't follow their own positions, the Bechamai Ruba, Bechamai are the majority. The Manda Amr Asu, but the people who say Bechamai follow their own positions, Kiazlina Bataruba, when do we follow majority? When both sides are equivalent scholars, but Bechamai believed that they were smarter, and because Bechamai believed that they were smarter, therefore they said, "When you claim that there's a majority, you are counting illegal votes, uh, right? Because you're allowing people to count in the vote who shouldn't count because the cutoff for election should be this standard." And if you don't reach this standard of scholarship, however they frame that standard of scholarship, then you don't get to vote, right? So they said you are right. You are bringing in illegal votes, and Behil presumably said, "Bishama, you're engaging in voter suppression." And the result is that majority rule failed. Majority rule failed, and that I think is itself the reason that you, that a heavenly voice might be legally relevant in the case of the dispute between Behil and Bishama, even though generally we say lo me, because in this case. There was no way of settling the issue. It was permanently, right? Because when the rule is but we have different conceptions of who right, who gets to vote, who the voting public is, um, and particularly if it gets to the point where each of us um, deliberately constructs the voting rules in such a way that gives us a majority, so majority rule breaks down. So this, to me, is the model in halacha for the collapse of majority rule as a decision-making mechanism, right? That we say there are always going to be exceptions for conscience, like Rebbe Liezer and Rebbe Kavim Mahalel, and those the system can handle, although it may do it by uh, by excluding people at least from power. Maybe it'll even resort to uh, right to state-sanctioned violence against them. But the system breaks down, but at least even in those cases, Everyone accepted the fundamental legitimacy of the process. They might have thought they were exceptions, but they agreed that when there is a doubt, you have to follow the majority. But Ben Hill and Bishamai disagreed about who gets to vote when it constitutes the majority, so there's no decision process at all. Okay, right? So that's now that is also right. So we have so we have two different um right, two different ways of responding to that. One way of responding to it is to allow a heavenly voice, right, allow some kind of totally external 
authority enter into the picture and make the decision. On whatever grounds it does, according to the Gemara Erevin, that we make the decision because Beit Hillel were kinder and more modest and were at least willing to cite Beit Shammai's positions academically before rejecting them. So in some way, right, because they were probably because they were more devoted to trying to make the system work, um, right, they at least paid lip service to to, um, to majority rule, even if they um, gerrymandered it to a certain extent. Um, so, right, so they, they win. But that's one, one mechanism to say, you know what, we acknowledge at certain points that majority rule has simply broken down, and so we have to resort to some kind of externality, uh, right, which they call a botkol. Okay. Second possibility, which you have to recognize, is that when people feel that the rule majority rule is rigged against them, so they're going to resort to violence. And um, so that's what Bisham may do. Bisham may resort to violence so they can get a majority on the things they care most about. And it seems to me that we have that probably a good way of understanding halachic history, in at least you know, at least the internal halachic history, is that um, the con- right part of the condition of reaching a consensus that the halacha follows Beit Hillel because they have a permanent majority is not overturning the 18 decrees from the day when Beit Shammai had power, because that would have felt that would have made Beit Shammai feel that civil that it was that civil war as they felt about those things. Beit Shammai demonstrated that it was worth it was worth engaging in civil war to prevent major, the majority from ruling that way. Um, so that's the right. So that, so I think you can view halachic history in the end as a compromise, where Beit Shammai agree to disband essentially as a they agree the argument is going to take place within the framework of Beit Hillel from now on, but the but they they have rules that can't be changed, right? They're implanted as uh, constitutional amendments as opposed to as legislation um, that um, right about the eighteen things. Okay, um, the issue, of course, is that at some point the right the um, the Sanhedrin stops functioning as a an effective means of, dis- of eliminating disputes among Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel at that point, but until the Sanhedrin disbands, it can still be an effective mechanism for um, preventing for preventing the situation from degenerating into anarchy. Uh, right? It, it, it's just that gap that can't be bridged. But once there's no Sanhedrin, so then gaps bre- gaps spring up all over the all over the place. And in fact, there are times when we just concede. Right? We uh, the Babylonia Bav- Bav- and and Palestine. Form separate halachic cultures. Ashkenazim and Sephardim form separate halachic cultures, and this is something that's kind of you know, that we constantly debate now. To what extent, um, right within Orthodoxy, to what extent do we think that majority is a, is a fa- is a factor? To what extent do we think that um, really, let's say, you know, centrist Orthodoxy, modern Orthodoxy, and Haredi Orthodoxy, Hasidic Orthodoxy are each entitled to follow their own halachic traditions, and we make no effort at arriving at a decision mechanism between them, and then. But every once in a while, when the community has to engage in some kind of a collective action, or we need some kind of intercommunal uh, norms, um, which are, you know, start off about personal status issues, so then we have to figure out what are the things that everyone sees as worth secession over, and what are the things that people say, look, this is what we do amongst ourselves, but we think there's a value in unity that transcends our specific position, and figure out and negotiate accordingly. Okay, right. So that's a whole model. Those are various models for seeing the risks. You know, we're the, 
where um, where where rule can majority rule can break down, what and what possible ways what what can happen if you don't address it, what possible ways of addressing it are. If we wanted to apply, we have to figure out what's the equivalent of a Deus Ex Machina, right? Of having a heavenly voice come out, and when do we acknowledge that we're so deadlocked that we need a heavenly voice? When do we see violence as so illegitimate that it removes you from the system, and when do we see it as demonstrating that we have failed to integrate you in the system, and so therefore, you know what, those we're going to give you, uh, right? Those are all, I think, powerful questions that emerge from the history of halacha. Um, this, by the way, is also if you read this week's essay a lot. This is, um, I think, if you've heard, if you've been here, then I think you're likely to understand the essay better. I guess. Um, I wanted to point out in the remaining eight minutes that um, what we haven't settled at all is that. Um, so Beit Hillel said majority rules, and Beit Shammai say that no, right? Only, right? Only people of of uh, high intellectual achievement or whoever's, whichever group is intellectually sharper, majority, right? Um, that's the group among whom we care what they what they say. So the halacha follows Beit Hillel, um, but that doesn't mean that Beit Hillel were right in principle. It just means that Beit Hillel were right in that case. Maybe Halakha follows Beit Hillel because Beit Shammai were wrong about whether they were sharper, right? That's what the Heavenly Voice comes out and teaches us. Beit Shammai thought they were sharper, but that was only because Beit Shammai were good old-fashioned Hasidic Lamdanim and didn't understand brisk, and Beit Hillel were briskers. And, but really, Beit Hillel were just, right, briskers are just as sharp as, as, as Mithalplim or vice versa. Or maybe Beit Shammai just you know, had too much ego, and really Beit Hillel was just as good. So we don't know what the issue is in principle. So I wanted to show you, uh, in case you think that, oh, We've settled that issue now. Now we know in halacha that it's majority vote. So obviously that's not true anyway, because even if you were to say, okay, we settled it, that you don't have to be at the top level, there's still going to be a standard, right? It's not right because generally, right, there is a right, there is a rule that consensus practice has a lot of impact among the laity has has an impact on halacha, but majority practice among the laity has very little practice. So you need to make it into the voting elector group, and now we have issues. So what's our, even if we agree that we're going to have a minimal as opposed to a maximal standard, what's the minimal standard? So if you say it's smicha, so which yeshiva, right? So that's, you get into all the political issues over, right, let's say within the rabbinical council of America, which yeshiva smicha counts. Maybe ordinary smicha isn't enough. You have to have yad and yad and smicha, uh, right? Maybe you have to be roi l'hora'ah, which is the whole dispute, right? Rav Shechter has one position, other people other positions about what makes you roi l'hora'ah um, nowadays. So it wouldn't help anyway, but I wanted to, Read on the core issues. So here's the Meiri. Meiri says the following: Kol davar. Any time that there is a, a dispute among you know a large group of people um, about a particular halachic matter, and they decided to go to take it to a vote, right? Because one of the issues you can have, which is what we often do, is just decide the issue is too divisive, so we simply won't go to vote, um, right? Or the Supreme Court can decide not to grant certiorari if you think the Supreme Court is functioning the way the Sanhedrin did. Uh, so, and one side gets the majority. So the Miri says, So if the people on each side are equal, not numbers, but in terms of ability, then you follow the majority. But he says, If the, major- the minority is much sharper, right? So then right, you don't overrule it. Right, so then you just the group just divides and each side gets to follow its own position. So he doesn't think that Beit Shammai could impose themselves on Beit Hillel if the same issue were recreated. 
but he thinks that the majority can't impose itself on the, on the minority either. Right? That if they right, that a, a sharper majority does not have to bow to majority. So that's a pretty powerful, uh, right? That's a pretty powerful uh, statement. Okay, you'll see, and we see that you know, over and over again that um, really, uh, really, halachic tradition does not see that issue as settled. That everyone seems to think that there are circumstances in which the side that is mechudad tvei, that is sharper, is at least entitled to at least hold its own positions against the um, right against the uh, majority. And they have different kinds of mechanisms. Again, um, it's so the Ramban. Uh, so there are two things that we'll say before we finish. Um, the Ramban says the following. He says that uh, maybe in the the cases where right, where we where we uh, allow people to reject the majority, um, that's that's only when they don't have time when they haven't deliberated, um, right? So if you haven't deliberated together, so the majority is irrelevant. So that's a very powerful idea, but hard to figure out in practice. And the Ramban really thinks that maybe this whole idea of majority rule only applies when you've had a chance to fully discuss the issue, then you have to figure out how much you take that as a metaphor and how much you take that as, as literal. But until the, until the issues have been fully discussed by, with each other, then majority is irrelevant. And Sir Ramban actually, even in the Sanhedrin, deals with this question where he, seemed, where he thinks that if, as long as you have a new argument that hasn't been discussed, uh, then you're not bound by the Sanhedrin's ruling because right, everything is in suspension um, until they've heard all the arguments. Okay, so then whoever asks the question does whatever they think, right? Whichever way they think is uh, right is the way of wisdom and truth. But in order to impose this law, um, everybody, sh- every, the Sanhedrin has to deliberate collectively together. And then he has a fascinating line. He says, who says the majority rule is the way in which you should right? Is it should be a decision mechanism? Maybe the decision mechanism should be consensus. Ella de Rahmana Amar Rabbi Matot. So Rahman says that that um, allowing the majority to rule is really not the ideal, uh, or at least it's not a humanly understandable ideal. It seems to him that consensus would be a better practice. Um, and if you can't reach consensus, then there's no ruling at all. Um, but he says, look, but the Torah says, so I guess we have to do that. But he says, I don't really understand why we would follow majority. Why should, why we should think that anything other than the consensus is binding. So I'll say that that only applies as long as everybody has heard every argument. So Ivan really ends up saying that majority is, right, majority is, uh, come, bringing it to a vote is sort of an evidence of failure because really you should have reached a, um, really you should have reached a consensus. Okay, um, I guess with this we'll finish. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.